This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. Shooting a sport is one thing. Finding the beauty in that sport is a completely different thing altogether. My guest, Matt Dirksen, can do that and make it look so easy. After six seasons with the Colorado Rockies as the team photographer, Matt has decided to step away and find a better path for him and his family. Not every club has a team photographer in the clubhouse. Like John Sue, who, you know, he might as well have his number in a locker and his jersey retired in Cooperstown. I mean, he's, he's a legend. And then you've got guys like Michael Zagaris in Oakland who have transcended what it means to be a documentary sports photographer. They're just there. And, you know, they've built that rapport over decades. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from Emmy and Oscar winners, college coaches, and photographer Paul Kennedy. So he takes these five images and, he, and they print them and everything. And the show opens at a gallery in Bridgeport, Connecticut on a Friday night. And I go for the show opening and, you know, it's nice. It, it's cool. Um, people are looking at my photographs and I, I got some nice reactions and I'm feeling real good. So I go home, happy. On Sunday morning, the phone rings. It's my father-in-law. He says, have you bought the New York Times yet? I said, not yet. He said, well, you better buy it because your name's all over the front of the art section. So I go out and buy the Times. I actually buy several copies of the Times. And <laughs> the New York Times photography critic had reviewed this show. And basically, he said the show sucked, except for the work of one photographer. And he spent like five or six paragraphs talking about my pictures. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for the sponsor before diving into my conversation with Matt Dirksen. I am so fortunate this morning that I was able to track down the man from the mountains. Mr. Matt, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, doing well. Appreciate you having me on. So I'm going to flatter you here right now, and I'm going to say if I had to to put down 100 bucks on who I wanted to make a beautiful baseball photo, I'm putting it on you right now. You make, you are making some beautiful photos. What the hell is going on? You're on fire. <laughs> I think a lot of that just comes to, um, back, back to like how I started and kind of the things that inspired me and, and de- working to develop my own style more than anything. You know, when I started in sports, I started on the video side of things and, was working more from a cinematic side of things. So I, I was more focused on making documentary type stuff, cinematic stuff. I mean, and this was right when, you know, people were hacking the five D with magic lanterns so that they could record video. Right. Um, and, and I mean, I guess that is dating me pretty quick, but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and that was the thing, you know, people were looking for manual, lenses from the 70s that they could put on their 5d they'd hack the camera and then you know you'd go shoot some cinematic video and i'd worked for six or seven years doing video production stuff and and through the course of that you know you could already see the technology changing you know cameras were becoming cheaper it was easier to get a um a slow motion camera in the hands of a 
a production professional, you know, I remember we had the Sony FS 700, which would do 240 frames a second. And it had that cinematic look. It was something that had interchangeable lenses. I mean, you, you now had the ability to do cinema and sports and, you know, people were also shooting with red epics and stuff like that. It just kind of depended on who you're working with and what the budget was for the project. Did you grow up in an, in a very nature place? Like I don't have a feeling that you grew up in a cement housing project of, you know, like Manhattan. Like where did you grow up? I was born in North Iowa. Um, North Iowa. Okay. So what is that like? I mean, it's farm country. Okay. It is, it is, there's not much around. Um, Very flat, very just, yeah, what you would think of Iowa cornfields is flat terrain, right? And then I moved to Indiana when I was eleven, so flatter. So, <laughs> so it's it's more more of the same. I mean, there was a lot more development stuff in the areas we lived in in Indiana, um, but I didn't really like. I played guitar growing up. Like I started playing guitar when I was eleven, and and music and the creative process was always what intrigued me, and the entertainment side of it too. Was that around the house? Did mom and dad encourage that and play as well? Um, they didn't play that. They had played music growing up. Um, my grandparents had played growing up. Um, and my great-grandfather was a drummer in a folk band in the 40s. Huh. Um, so it, it, music was always like around, like on the radio, but nobody played. Um, and it was about the time when I was going into that fifth grade, sixth grade time where I started wanting to learn and I actually stopped playing sports to pursue music. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Like baseball was the last sport I played before I, I put it all in on music. And then I went to college to be a session musician and, you know, they wanted me to learn classical. And I was like, I don't want to play classical. And, and, you know, I, w- I was interested in the audio recording process and, Oh, so, I was, so the back end stuff kind of intrigued you more? Yeah, I was always interested in the post production, the studio. Like, like, how do I produce stuff? How do I make it sound good? How do I make it look good? Came later, right? Um, and that's when I got into TV production. I actually started in a class, cinematography class. I was the audio guy, and I was working with those guys just to record good, clean audio on set. And then when we were putting these student projects together they would hand me over their edits from a video standpoint and i would go through and sync up all the audio and mix it and then fix their video edits you know because they'd have jump cuts and stuff that was all out of sequence and stuff but i would fix it and that's how i learned video production um and then i started shooting after that um but the cinematography side of it is and the technological changes in cameras is what pushed me into photography because those cameras that we were using, it was, you had the ability to do still photography. And as the industry was shifting, I started seeing more and more photographers trying to pick up video. I was like, well, I already got this down, but I don't know anything about the photo side of things. I knew how to light because I'd been doing documentary stuff. So it was learning strobes at that point, if I was going to do studio stuff and then learning how to, you know, what, what I told myself was I, I'm working with a camera right now that had 240 frames a second. How do I make one of those 240 frames be the ultimate storytelling image? 
and that was the challenge. So I started doing photography and trying to figure out how to make one of 240 as the, the be all end all. And that was, that's still my, my, my thesis, I guess, for it is, is how do I make the one image that's going to, to stand out from the rest? What was there? I mean, so you're taking that class. Was there anybody, did you take a photo class or anything else? Or were you just starting nope. to like feel it all on your own? I never took a photography class. Um, and even in cinematography, we were using um, Canon. I think they were like, what was it? It was like a, it was like a XD. Um, it wasn't XD cam. We were, we were using beta, beta tapes. Okay. They were trying to teach us cinematography with, um, by using depth of field by, but by actually zooming in and creating the separation that way, as opposed to shooting with primes, because those cameras that they had for the class at the time didn't have primes. They were still video tape cameras. Yeah. Right. But, but because of where we were technologically and the cost of technology at that point, we had two or three guys in the class that had Canon five D's and, you know, a handful of those mid seventies, primes you know they, they probably had like a 35 and an 85 mm -hmm. and we were making the films with that and that's where the external audio recorder came in because they really didn't have a way of piping the audio straight to those cameras so we were we were literally using external audio recorders and clap tracks and syncing it all in post but but that was how that that technological change happened for me. That was my first time using like DSLRs was in that class with a couple guys that had them. How like, did you feel immediately like a connection? Like, Oh my God, this is something I'm starting to really love. The post-production side. Yes, because it was still so close to um, like the recording process. Cause I was used to the, the NLE platform, you know, a nonlinear editor. So I was used to recording stuff at home in my parents' basement and being able to go edit audio. And then working in Final Cut 7, um, we were able to, to do the same type of nonlinear editing, but then I was learning video on top of it. Mm -hmm. It just, it all came natural to me from a post-production standpoint and I just consumed as much of it as I could because it was interesting to me and it still felt at, at home from a like like something that I'd been doing for years you know and then as I got more and more on set with those types of productions and I was also working after I took a few of those classes I started working at the local PBS station I was actually working as an editor but I would go out on the field productions to help and I was, that's how I kind of learned like more of the process and how to do the lighting side of things. And, um, wow, that is just, nuts. You jumped yeah. into like the deep end, really. Yeah. I mean, it was almost just like, you want to do it here, go for it. <laughs> wow. Um, but once I started working for the nationals out of, after college, I was doing, I was the senior video editor. Well, how did you get there? Explain that. How did you go from, college to deciding like oh hey nationals job i like baseball it's 
it's it's a good story. It's a weird story, and people still don't understand how I got into photography from the ways that I went. Um, I basically did through that PBS internship. It, there's a local production house at the campus that also does all of the studio productions for the PBS station there, all of the field productions. And then they also have contracts to do all the sporting events on campus. So they would do basketball and football video screens. And through that, I learned how to do, I learned how to run an EVS, which is a replay machine. And that they wanted me to do that because I could edit. So in the process of running replays, you're also clipping off highlights and storing them on a server and then building highlight packages for timeout breaks or for, you know, sponsored, you know, halftime and end of game highlights. Mm -hmm. and, and they do that on TV broadcasts too, where they're doing uh, a package to break or a package to, um, and the game, you know, it's, it's all the little highlight montages that you see are made with what is called an EVS right. replay machine. And what I basically did was, was I built up a portfolio of a bunch of hats and because I could run in-game stuff and I could shoot and I could do post-production, um, I, I had the versatility to go look at you know joining a club you know I, I was working as a freelancer by the time I got hired by the Nationals in Indianapolis I was working um, on all the local broadcasts for the Pacers and Colts and Indiana sporting events and stuff like that um, but the the Nationals hired me to be the senior video editor so I was editing and producing the TV commercials, radio commercials, anything that ran in the house, stuff that went on social, stuff that um, we needed for internal projects. And then I would also do the game day duties of either running a camera, taking the cinema camera out and creating the art for our packages, or I would run replay during the games. And because those productions became so multifaceted, it, you you would get asked to provide some pictures to go along with the video that you produce for social, or, you know, you would be, you'd have a player that would come in midway through the season and they basically say, okay, you've got three minutes to shoot your green screen stuff for the second half of the season. Right. With this new transaction. Um, but can you also grab a couple of headshots so that we can add them to the graphics designs for the, the video board shows. So at that point, then I'm shooting portraits on continuous lit sets for video. And that's kind of how the photography side of things it started to evolve um, was, you know, you're, you're doing production stills, but you wanted high res stuff that didn't have motion blur. So right. that was, that was the key was you need something that you can cut out. That's not a screen a screen grab, but you can still copy the look that you produced at spring training so that when the player's up to bat and you've got a still graphic up, you've got the highest resolution, crispy quality photo 
of them that looks like they've been there all year. Wow. So, so that was, that was how it all started was, you know, that small little ask. And, you know, I started pushing myself more and what year was that? 2013, 2014, probably. Okay. And then in 2015, my wife's job moved us to Denver and I was hired January 2016 by the Rockies as a team photographer. Now, did you go looking or was there an opening or how did that come about? It, there was an opening. Okay. They decided to bring their photography job in-house. Okay. They had contracted for the, the previous 20, almost 25 years. Mm-hmm. And they wanted somebody in-house that could manage the day-to-day and be around at every for every need, every call. Right. And just, you know, when you're a production house that has a contract like that, you are based off of, here's our initial agreement. Anything else is a subsidized, like we're going to charge you extra if you start adding little projects to stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, right. that's how a commercial operation works. That's how freelancers work. I mean, that's, that's kind of the billing side of, well, this is what we agreed to. This is in addition by bringing it in house, they were able to just have somebody there, you know, and I hired some part-timers as well. So, so we had an in-house staff that facilitated all those needs as opposed to needing to to hire out. Now, how going from what you were doing at the nationals, I mean, obviously you had the faith in yourself to say, I can do this full-time as the photographer, because you weren't the full-time photographer at the nationals. So now it's a, it's a I big wasn't jump. not a photographer at all. Like right. I had not done any photography jobs even. I hadn't even freelanced as a photographer. So how, what in the world gave you the idea like I could do this? I just always believe in myself. I just know whatever I set my mind to, I will accomplish. And I've, that's just always how I've, I've, how I've operated. And, you know, I got the interview to do that. And I did everything I could to convince them that I was the guy that they needed to do the job. And they also understood, you know, in that department, they needed somebody who also understood video because social media was in that department because PR and um, outside media relations type requests were handled in that department. They needed someone that they could also say, this is what somebody's asking for from a production side of things. Is this even possible? Like, like what, what are the context of this? Mm-hmm. And that department also did a lot of the, um, planning for the marketing and stuff for the the club for the year. So having the experience and knowing the video side of things could help them do the, the full scale marketing planning as well. Right. Cause it, so, I mean, that's a big sell for you to be like, listen, this is my first time I can handle this. Right. But it also wasn't the first time I'd ever walked into a job as the first person that would ever hold that title. I had done that before and had set up other places for success as the first person to do that. And I basically had developed a good reputation as being a person that could do that. Um, And I told them that as well. And and that helped, you know, it's not every day somebody has the ability to, to sit down and build a department and, and do the, that type of production marketing and planning and being able to, you know, 
basically build something from scratch and not miss a beat. Yeah, no, that's extremely difficult. But that first year was was difficult um, because, you know, having not been a photographer, but having an idea of what would be required of me, um, but also not having been somebody that had worked under anybody, had seen it done, you know, like, like in D.C. we had a couple of fantastic photographers that I used as resources for for bouncing ideas off of as I got started, but I never worked under them. So I didn't really know the full process of everything that they did. Right. Uh, but after that first year, I had a better understanding of, of, you know, did I, what did I over deliver on? What did, what can I, can I scale back on? And, you know, what do they really need versus what do they think they need? And that's big too. What you just said but, is huge. What they think they need and what they actually need are almost always two opposite things. Right. So going into that second year was where I started to develop my style. You know, the first year was just, let me get through it and understand what, what this place actually needs to run and what all the departments are going to need to operate and what the daily stuff is versus what the long-term stuff is versus what the, the, the front facing marketing stuff looks like. Mm -hmm. And that second year, you know, I was, I've always been a fan of the look of the stuff from like the forties where, you know, you, you've got a photographer who's close in proximity. They've got, you know, they, all they had back then was primes. So they've got this large format, shallow depth of field. And that's what I set out to recreate in the digital side. And at the same time, I was also looking back at some of the video techniques that, that I had done from a broadcast standpoint. And that's when I started also using a star filter on some of those night shots, which mm -hmm. you see star filters everywhere. Like every LCC's got a star filter on the back. <laughs> but but I brought that back, you know, and, and kind of, and it, that's why it's popular is because, you know, we started using it. Right. And now, now everybody just uses it, you know, and, you know, nobody knows why they use it. They just like, well, I got to have a full bag of tricks, you know, and this is what I see everybody else doing. But that's that's where I brought it from was TV broadcast because in college basketball, I remember sitting on the truck and the director would say, I need stars and five. And the CCU in the back run by the video technician would flip the switch and the star filter would pop in. And that's when the, the handheld camera would run out onto the floor. The coach is bringing in the players before the TV timeout. Then all of a sudden you got stars up above their heads coming from the overhead lights. That's where that came from for me. Like, the, like there's a reason for it. Right. Isn't it funny that that was something TV would do, whether it was like the CBS basketball game of the week and they would show yeah. like a really wide shot and the ball would be in the frame and it would be, you know, yeah. Big East, Georgetown and Syracuse and they have this and star filter and photographers later caught on and be like, oh, I could do that too. Yeah. It's like, but that's, that's where it came from for me. Like I, I, I knew what it was. I knew what it was for. It wasn't just another trick for trick that that people pull out like right. i i set out to say i want to create something different and i want my stuff to be different i don't want to produce anything that somebody else has already done i don't want to produce anything that you know has already been done within the organization too like mm -hmm. even from photo day stuff right i was like i don't want to do anything that's been done the last 25 years every year i want to do something absolutely different i have to stand in the same hallway that we have for 20 years but I'm not doing the same thing every, every year, ever. 
And that is such a challenge. It is. But it's so much more rewarding when you're done and you're like, that was awesome. And it's never been done before. And, you know, I'm pumped on it. And, you know, we don't get like some of those clubs where they've got two weeks to produce all their assets. (laughs) Um, I got 90 minutes. Yeah. That's it. Go. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's. Again, we talked about before we hit the record button, like the 30 teams absolutely operate so differently and and trying to understand like how the Dodgers do it compared to the Reds, compared to Seattle, compared to Tampa Bay. It is not just apples and oranges. It's like rocks and tomatoes. Yeah, it is 30 different fruits. (laughs) (laughs) And some aren't even fruits. I'm serious. Some are just unbelievably backwards but that's just the way they operate and you can't change things so it was interesting for you to come in take that first year of like just hold your breath and get through it and then understand like okay Uh, so what was the reaction that second that second year when you're starting to like maybe make some slow changes i bought a lens so i i i I have a hate relationship just vehemently with a 70 to 200. (laughs) Were you attacked by one as a small child? No, it's just (laughs) every time you need a 70 to 200, you know, it's hanging at your, on your shoulder. It's always front heavy. I mean, it's always pulling down on your shoulder. And when you pick it up, where's it at? You know, is it at 70s at 200 or 104? Um, And my problem was, I was always trying to hold on to something else at the same time. I don't have three hands to go find the zoom on that. Right. So I locked it off at 135 and figured out that I can shoot everything I want at 135. And the other thing that I, 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 if I don't have to shoot with a zoom, I don't shoot with a zoom. There's times where you just, you have to shoot with a zoom. There's no way around it. Mm -hmm. But when, when I started shooting with primes, like I started to notice my stuff really looked different oh. and I, I didn't stop them down any, it was wide open. You, you either nailed it in focus or you missed it. Mm-hmm. You know, I had talked to a couple of older guys that, you know, worked alongside me in the wells and they were like, yeah, if you want to shoot with primes, go for it. You're going to have, you're going to make yourself a better shooter because you're either going to be on or off. Right. And, you know, there's no in between. You're you're either in focus, you've got the eye, or you throw it away. Like like there's no there's no print sharp. Right. Like eh, I'll make it work. No. Yeah. Like like back when they were printing newspapers, like there was a print sharp where you could get away with, you know, a little bit of whatever. But those guys also didn't shoot those things that wide open either. I mean, unless they were shooting Hasselblads or something, they would have a different look. But you know digital is a lot less forgiving you're either on or you're off right and i started shooting with a 35 and a 135 that year and it changed the way i felt about the game the way i approached covering the game and what i felt was that it brought a certain level of intimacy to the game of baseball the way i felt about the game of baseball getting to be there every day in those types of close um, access situations. It was a documentary setup. 
um, and it, it, the 135 was, was a massive game changer as well because I could also use it for action. And that 135 felt like the old cameras of the 40s, especially like if you show up at like San Francisco where you've got an inside well. Mm-hmm. You can almost get down that third base line with it. I mean, it is the drop behind the player is immense. Yeah. When someone shoots that with a 70 to 200, I don't care if it's a 70 to 200 F4 or 70 to 200 F2.8, they still feel generic. And like everybody's already made that shot, even if it's the coolest shot in the world. You put that 135 at 1.8 and it is, it just lifts off the, the frame. The, the depth difference and that just captivated me <laughs> yeah it's a huge difference right and then with primes you know you know it the the light reflects differently down the barrel sometimes too so you you get a different feel if you're shooting into the sun than if you're with a, a zoom you know it, it things just they just vibe different so tell me about the hunt for this 135 where did you Decide like okay, I gotta go hunt for the Nikon 135. Well, Nikon didn't offer one that wasn't made since 1991, and I asked them to make me one, and they never did. Yeah, and you're talking about the old 135 F2, yeah, correct? The, the DC. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't going to use that for sports because I didn't want that old screwdriver system. So I bought a Sigma art lens, you know, and people were still very, very at that point people weren't using Sigma art stuff in sports because they didn't trust the autofocus. That's like, well, do you not trust the autofocus or do you, are you just not so sure in your own skills? Yeah. And a lot of it, I mean, it's just the way it is. Sigma had a, had a stigma of being second fiddle. You bought, you bought that because you couldn't afford the next official brand, whether it was Canon or Nikon. Right. But even that lens is like a $1,400 lens, not a cheap lens. Right. And I mean, you add $600 more and you've got a 70 to 200. Mm-hmm. But this 70 to 200 doesn't look like that 135. It's it's just a, okay, I'm here. I need, I need, I got to have a 70 to 200 because I, I don't know. I'm uncomfortable with my situation. Or I'm uncomfortable with my shooting style that I need to be able to zoom. If, if you show up with a 135, you know what you're going to get every single time. Um, and you have to change. You have to know your style and be comfortable in your own style to be able to sit there and show up with a set of primes. Right. And you also, it helps. Your your biggest advantage is you're shooting 80 games at your place. Right. So Plus you know what focal lengths work. Right. You do, and you're going to show up with a 35 and a 135 at batting practice or in the clubhouse, and you know you don't need the light gathering principles of it at batting practice unless you're in Arizona. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> this place is a dungeon, but when when you when you're at Coors Field, you've got light. I mean, there's 300 days plus of sunshine every year in Colorado. You've got light. But it's how do you use that light, you know? And when when you start to shoot, um, you know, at that point of the day, shadows start to come in across the field and you get pockets of light where guys will step into it, but you've got 
black shadows behind them where, you know, what I always try to teach people when, when I talk to them about photography is you have to understand how your camera sees things, not how your human eye sees things. Right. Your human eye can see like 24 um, stops of dynamic range in every single color in the electromagnetic spectrum with whatever color temperature it wants to see. And it can discern the difference between daylight and incandescent and, you know, first light at sunrise. It can see all these different colors all at the same time, and it can delineate what those colors represent. When you turn your camera on, it can only see one color temperature at a time. And it can only see a certain range of light at a time. So when you start to look at those scenes, you're like, okay, well, I've got direct sunlight here and shadow behind, but my eye just sees a bunch of empty seats. If you line up, you can shoot a rim light, rimlet subject right there, boom, no problem. By by just dialing in eight thousandths of a second, one eight hundred ISO, you're done. You know, <laughs> think about, you know, and, and I was explaining this to a, to a guy the other day. It's like you've got in a situation like that, you've got two different ways you can expose the camera. You can expose the camera for the light on the back side of them, which is going to give you that artistic shot, or you can expose for the light on the front side of them, which is going to give you the details in the face. When you shoot 130 games a year, there's only so many ways you can do stuff before you get bored. And, you know, and that's where, you know, you've got the time to practice the art of the game and capture the game in that artistic fine art sense. And you don't have to worry about always having guy standing there beside the cage at batting practice with everything evenly lit. It's like, it just burns you out. Yeah. I mean, our advantage when we were the team guys is we had so many games. Like I always felt bad for the AP guy or the Getty guy where they had to get the pitcher pitchers. They had to look at, make sure they get everything at second base. Like they had this generic formula they had to follow day after day. And then they tried to make whatever pretty pitcher. Like I had nothing to do but just tell a story of the game. And I right. could make pretty pictures all day long and nobody would call me the next morning and go, I can't believe you missed second base play in the third inning. It's like I Yeah. Was, I was making I, pretty I pictures. Sitting there for the entirety of a third inning, some games just sitting in the bottom of the well, aiming up at whatever pitcher was on the mound just because I had a that lens flare from the Coors Field iconic lens flare that Mm -hmm. I had never seen shot before. Um, And, you know, the story of how I kind of figured out how to make those shots evolved over the course of my time there as well. You know, if you go back and you look at, you know, what I did in 2016, what I did in 2017, it wasn't really until 2018 until I figured out how to deal with that light. Right, because it's brutal. It's awful. It is so bright it, it is absolutely one it's blinding yeah where one you if you can't see the first baseman can't see and you know guys like nolan arenado would understand that they would have to take a few steps and come in from the side and he oftentimes even bounce a throw into first base so that the first baseman can make a play but you've got guys that come in from the road like you know the yankees come every four years those guys don't know how to play in that no. like so you balls flying in um all the time just because guys couldn't see well you can't see they can't see 
I mean, it's dangerous. And I kind of got tired of just having to, to be sitting in that situation where I could get hit. And I started, when the light would get bad, I would just sit in the base of the well where, where, where we'd have a full net over, over our, where that lens would be, as opposed to having the little slot in there where you would put your lens in to shoot through. Right. Um, and I was always constantly fighting light. Even, even with the longest lens hood on the planet, you were still getting light into your barrel. And it, it, it was always like, if you exposed for the guy on the mound, it was always just this awful flat washed out. And you'd have like a little bit of a, a glint around the bottom where it just had like this really bright um, flaring and it, it wasn't good. Um, but what I decided to do was like, well, what can I do if I just shoot for the light as opposed to trying to shoot what's in shadow? So I got down in there and I started playing with the 135 and I started, and I'd take the hood off and then I'd take the 400 and I'd take the hood off of that. And I would just shoot the light. And if you happen to come through the frame in that light, then that's how I would frame it up. Now the problem was that light was so bright and you're aiming a lens right at the sun. <laughs> um, so sometimes I would have to put the camera into live view so that, you know, I could see what was going on without actually looking through the, the viewfinder. And because there's so much light barreling in, I mean, it, it's like shining a flashlight in the end of it. It's so bright. Um, or actually not a flashlight, but like the a sun. Yeah. <laughs> it was brutal. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, put an Ari light at the end of it and yeah. you're going straight in and, and it can be very painful. It's, it is painful. And what, what I decided, what the camera, like those Nikon cameras that I was using then, I mean, they were at the top of the line I was using a D five and it wouldn't autofocus because the light was hitting the, camera so hard that the, it didn't know where it was going no it couldn't register anything to even find a you know a contrast right. to shoot and yeah the sony's i'm using now are a little better with that i mean but they'll still um slip and run real quick if if the that flare hits the focus sensor just right um but that's just technology I mean, mm -hmm. it's just what it does so i i would actually have to pre-focus a lot of those shots and wait for the most opportune moment to make the frame and different parts of the year, you know, this, the sun is constantly moving as the earth moves and your sure. days get longer and your days get shorter. So you might be sitting in a slightly different part of the well, or you might have a different amount of time window, or the flare is going to be in a slightly different place in that same season. So you only get so many opportunities to work with it. And then, you know, the whole, I got to pre-focus just to nail it. And then, you know, you need something interesting to happen to, to even have the subject doing something appropriate. Right. Um, and it just became one of those things where it's like any chance I got, I just, that's what I would try to do is it's like, because if you nailed it, the, that type of shot just transcended whatever else was happening on the field. Because uh, it, it just, it just spoke. It just had this richness to it. It just felt raw and authentic. Um, and, and, you know, the, the only other place that has like a really kind of interesting opportunity for something like that is angels stadium right you know they've they've got a little pocket of light that that will come through and you can get the front light on them where it almost like looks like you've got a snooted spot on them mm -hmm. 
but I don't think you you can actually shoot into the flare side of it. No, you can't. Yeah, so it's really it's the only ballpark in the country where you can do that uh, from a major league standpoint. Right. Yeah, it's just because of how it's designed and how it sits in there with where the sun sets. And f- for the luck of God, nobody's blocked it with a banner or a oh, stairwell okay. or a suite. I mean, that happens. Well, and I I had heard um, some players asking for a way to do that, and I sent that player a picture of what that looks like for me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> looking at it. And they're, they're just like, wow, these are gorgeous. I go, that's the same light that you're fighting. You know, when, when I decided to, to embrace it, this is, this is what comes from it. Like it is just absolutely nothing like it. Like it's the type of light people try to create in a studio. Yeah. There's nothing better. There's nothing, nothing better when, nothing better. when, for the love of God, it works. Whatever the earth, the place you're at, all align right with you and your subject, and it works. And you're just like, oh, thank the Lord, I'm here. Right, but it's also you know you're you're working 81 home games, so I mean you're you're gonna be there for every one of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and if there's an opportunity, you're gonna take it, um, because at the end of the day, you know you know, you've got a second shooter there and, you know, teams have access to Getty and the AP from a licensing standpoint. And in the third inning, nobody's breaking any records. And if they are, you're already aware of it because, you know, Albert Pujols is there and he's going for number 670 or whatever. Right. Up, you know, and there's a moment where you're just, you're not playing with the sun at that point. You know, you're, you're there for the history of the game. Um, and you go for you. You, you got to cover that, but you know there's opportunities for all that, right? And it, it always happens. What? Uh, because there's nothing like the relationships you have to develop with the players. Because we are very fortunate. We have a lot of time with them. With the six weeks of spring training, there's so much that happens before the game. Uh, even during the game, being in and out and seeing them come in and off the field, being able to be looking into the well, how was it for you developing those relationships early in your Rockies career when you're the guy? How was that for you? How was that process? My my first year was was fantastic. I had um, Carlos Gonzalez and Gerardo Parra, two guys who just wanted and, and understood, you know, the need for having – a camera around to capture those little moments and you know social media at that time was also big where they wanted to to post stuff and they were the two first two guys that that i had really met and i had done a little research going into spring training It was the first time that those two guys had played together since little league on the same team and i approached them the day that they both reported you know told them i gotta get a picture of you guys you know just hanging out and having a good time and then some of the candid stuff. And from that point on, just having done a little research and knowing um, something about them prior to actually introducing myself to them was key. And then from there on out, they, they wanted me in proximity and being able to kind of tell their side of the story. Um, And then as guys 
start to be more comfortable with that. I mean, this is the first time in club history where there's a team photographer on staff who's can be in the clubhouse at any given moment. You know, prior to that, they would have to get PR approval. And at this point, you know, I've got the support of baseball ops and I've got PR support and, you know, I'm earning the trust of the clubhouse Mm -hmm. and the more you're around and the, the more that, they understand what you're there for and what you're doing and that what you are doing is not um, invasive. Then the, the walls start to come down and you become part of the fabric, you become part of the culture of just that system. And it takes time, you know, and it, I, even after the first year, I feel like I was still building relationships in year two and year three. And then, you know, we also had a manager change in there and, with that, you know, you have to build a relationship with them really quick um, just so that they know what you're about and what you're there for. And, and you can start to build that relationship and the parameters for how you want to be able to continue to do your job because they'll have the ability real quick to, to shut you down. And not every club has a team photographer in the clubhouse. Like John Sue, who, you know, he might as well have his – number in a locker and his jersey retired in cooperstown i mean he's he's a legend and then you've got guys like michael zagaris in oakland who have transcended what it means to be a documentary sports photographer i mean they're just there right and you know they've built that rapport over decades oh absolutely i uh when i was with cal state fullerton and some of my guys would get drafted to oakland i would tell them and matt chapman was one of them the last one he's the third yeah. baseman i would say hey maddie yeah. You make sure you find uh, Zagaris. You tell him Matt Brown says hello. That'll break some ice, and you want to hear about X amount of stories. And then I would see him a year or two later at an alumni game, and he'd be like, oh, my God, you were right. That guy is awesome. He's the best Z-Man. Immediately starts calling him Z-Man. You know, it's like, yeah, they don't make him like that anymore. That guy's a treasure. You did that for me a few years ago, too. we re-signed Chris Ionetta. Oh, my favorite. L.A. And he's one of the guys. I still keep in touch with him. Yeah. But, yeah, that was that initial icebreaker was I introduced myself and then told him that I knew you from the Angels. And that we were sort of becoming friends after that and chatting. And, you know, now he's got the, the winery thing, but mm-hmm. he also plays guitar and I've got that guitar thing. Like, he kind of got me back into playing guitar after, you know, I, I kind of left music to pursue this photography thing full time. And I, right. I, I mean, that was your thing right in college. Yeah. yeah you were I going to college to play music. I, and I had a collection of vintage guitars and amps and pedals. And I, that was an investment decision at the time, you know, to, I would have stuff ready to go for studio stuff, but at the same time, it was all stuff that was going to appreciate in value and I, I made money on everything, and then I bought camera equipment, which depreciates at a much more rapid pace. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is not a financial move that is meant to make you money from an investment standpoint, no. other than the fact that you're investing in yourself so that you can produce your work. Right. But Chris was the one that got me back into playing guitar because um, he found out that I had played, and at that point I had played like, 18 years or something and I didn't have a guitar anymore and, and he handed one to me and said 
can you teach me how to play something? I picked it up and showed him how to play it. <laughs> and I, he was like, you don't have a guitar anymore? And I go, no, I don't. I sold it all off. But, I mean, it's one of those things like me playing music, I gave it everything I had the same way that you guys did from a sports standpoint. Like I played eight hours a day in college. I was playing 10 hours a day and you know, I, I got really good at it. And then I took five years off and now, now I'm working hard to find the time to, to continue to play. And, you know, I have stuff that I've written a decade ago that I really want to record again. And technology's gotten so much easier and cheaper and recording has gotten so much easier. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, part of why I left my full-time job with the Rockies was I really wanted to one have more time with my family, but also be able to pursue other things, uh, you know, outside of baseball um, and do other sports, but also have time to play music again. You know, music was always one of those things that just, it was always, something I loved and I just I still like you know you get done sending a bunch of emails or something like that or you're ready for that break you just go pick up a guitar and play for a while and that was one thing I never had at at an office was you know you get done and you're still in an office and now I've got my own office and I've got five guitars sitting around and you know I've got cameras over there and I can I can sit down and tinker or I can go play and that's just the, the nice thing about that freelance world is you kind of have the time to, to build for yourself. Right. Because I don't think people understand there's baseball. I don't know who invented baseball to say it should be 162 games, but that person's a moron because the season is forever. And then they throw on, then they throw on spring training. regular season games. Right. And you've got 30 spring training games. And if you make it to the world series of play, every game in the wild card and every game in the division series, championship series and the world series, you're up to like 182 plus 30 spring training. You're over 200 games. Yeah. It's such a life suck. And yeah. so to do anything else, suck. it is just brutal. Yeah. I used to have to bring my family on the road for birthdays or anniversaries. And like, I don't know how the players ever did it. Like I have no understanding of how you can even paid a lot more than you, but even then you're still not home. Like I would have these conversations with these guys and they'd be like, Oh man, like, can you take it when my wife's coming to the game? Can you take some pictures of the kids and I before, you know, the game? Okay. Right. Yeah. Not a problem because they're in town and then you're leaving and you're going here. And it's like, Oh my God. Like anytime, I'm sure you were the same way. Anytime player had families in town or we were in town where the family was and they would reach out and say, Hey, can you get some photos? I never said no because I knew how much it meant to them. Having a kid changed it all. Yeah. It just changes your perspective on time. Oh, absolutely. And I think time is just the, the, the one thing that it all revolves around. Yeah. We never get it back. No. Never get it back. And, you know, the, the thing that most people think about when you're a team photographer is like, oh, you get to go work all the games. Cool. But they don't realize that that game might start at 6:40 but you're you're working and if that game is a slow arduous game and it goes 4 hours then you know it's over at a quarter after 10 and then you've got to dump your cards and then you know you got a 40 minute drive home it's almost midnight by the time you get home 
but then you got to edit all that stuff and tag all that stuff. And, you know, we've got to, we built a system that we could build everything out and tag it and send it through Greenfly so that players could have access to everything that we were shooting. But that takes time. So by the time you go through two, 3,000 photos from a game, depending on what kind of game it was, um, you know, some games you may only have 10 pictures and some games you might have 150 because you might have to do corporate signage and pregame ceremony stuff and everything else. Oh, yeah. That other department requests throughout the game. And then you got to do that in the morning, but BP starts at 2. Okay, so then I got to start working at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm working 14 hours a day. Easy. Every day of the week. Every day of the week. And then you go on the road and your demands might be substantially less because you're you're not working on corporate stuff per se because you know you're only valuable on the corporate side of things if you're available mm-hmm. right if you're on the road they, they understand they'll get you when you get back which okay now i got 10 meetings when i get back <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. you know that road trip might be 11 days long you've got three cities and you start adding the travel in on top of that you know, one of my worst travel nightmares was 2018. We tied the Dodgers for the division lead on game 162. We left Denver. We had a one o'clock game the next day in LA for 163. We lost. It was a it was a great game, but we lost. The Dodgers are just hard to beat at Dodger Stadium. Right. And everybody knows that. And, you know, because you lost, you then became the wild card second seed mm-hmm. had to fly to Chicago to play the wild card game from the LA from LA. Yeah. You don't get to go home. Denver? No, you, and you're getting into Chicago, which is three time zones away at three in the morning. You know, it's a four hour flight, three and a half hour flight plus three time zones. So you're, you're in the air for like six and a half hours. Plus you're getting into like midway. So you've got an hour to get downtown. <laughs> Even on a, with a police escort at three in the morning, you know. So then you've got a seven o'clock primetime game um, that night. That game went 14 innings. We won. So we get on a bus and we head to Milwaukee and we're getting into Milwaukee, which is only an hour away, but we're getting in at five in the morning. God. It's, you're talking about a five hour baseball game plus. Afterward, you, you know, you've, you've won the wild card game, so there's some celebration. But everybody also needs the time with their families because all the families are in town. So then, you know, it might take you a longer amount of time to get out of there on a game like that. And because you're so close to Milwaukee, you're not flying. You're, you're getting on buses. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had night road construction. Oh, of course they did. So, I mean, it took us – I think it took us 90 minutes to get to Milwaukee. <laughs> Um, I remember hitting the pillow at five ten in the morning and we didn't have a game the next day, but we had a workout at three o'clock. And so we, we got to the state, we leave for the stadium at like one thirty, two o'clock. So, so you're up at 10, you got five hours of sleep and you know, you slept on the plane the night before. Um, and then you get into Milwaukee and you're just absolutely destroyed. I mean, it's, it's, it is absolutely a lifestyle and the road can take as much out of you as working 14. I mean, you work a 10 game homestand, 14 hour days. I mean, you work and you know, and that's not to mention if you've got a community event in the morning, um, 
on one of those days. I mean, you're basically doing 140 hours in a week. Right. And then someone, some fan walks up to you and goes, oh my God, I, I would do your job for free. Yep. <laughs> Just want to punch him in the face. It's, it's, I mean, even at the end when people come and say, oh, I bet that's a really cool job. It's yeah, it's a really cool job. I wish I could tell you how much it drains you. But at the end of the day, you know, you're still showing up, you're shooting a baseball game. Um, you're making beautiful images and you get, you still have the access and the trust that you've earned with these guys to be able to create something different than your counterparts that are working for, for news affiliates, you know? Right. It, it was, it's a, it's a very fortunate, lucky position to be in, but it does. I, I don't know how like Ben up in Seattle, John at the Dodgers, um, and Michael have done it for as long as that. And, and oh, Steven at the, at, at, Steve at, yeah, Steve yeah. Green at, at the Cubs as well. Another guy who's well over 25 years. I don't Mark, know. Mark Levine and with the Mets has been there over 30 years. That's right. I can't forget him. Absolutely. I yeah. have no clue how they can pull it off. God love them. Well, they, and then Zagaris is working A's and Niners. <laughs> He's been doing it for 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. Tell me about your process as with the Rockies in your archiving system. Cause I think that's a lot of um, very different of the 30, but different in colleges, the way they operate. What did you start with and end with? Did you find something better as that, as those years went on? No, we, uh, when we started, we started with photo shelter, um, but photo shelter, grew as we grew um so the first year we we used photo shelter as not only an archive but as an ftp for real-time distribution to social media okay and that was we we went on record with photo shelter at the end of that year and did like a big um like a webinar with them Mm -hmm. and it blew up everywhere. I, I mean, if anybody used photo shelter at that time, they knew that that was like the, the, the real time workflow was you could get stuff in and you could get stuff around, but everybody had their own type of um, way that they were like, a lot of people didn't want to give up the ability to pre edit stuff before social got it. Okay. I was hired to do that. Like that's what they wanted. They wanted it now. And I had to give that up because it was part of, how things went. Um, and th- that was one of the hardest things to do was be able to just trust yourself to send it and then trust the fact that they would crop and straighten. And, you know, if you needed a, a color shift or something, we had really bad red halogen lights for the first few years I was there. And you just trusted them to, you know, I built a, a LUT, which is a lookup table, which is, goes back to cinematography. A LUT is something that they use in, in color grading in cinema and i built one in lightroom and created the same file that you would use for cinema so that our social media could apply it in photoshop as a layer and it would pull the red out and boost the purple um and it was you know it was probably one of the first times one of those things got used too from a a branding standpoint so we we coupled that with the real-time workflow and then we talked to you know we did the webinar and then 
after the webinar, I had like 40 different sports organizations reach out to me. <laughs> and they were like, how does this work? And it's like, well, you just need an Ethernet line and a, and a pro camera. I mean, just turn, turn the FTP on. I mean, I didn't realize that this was groundbreaking technology because it's all there. Like, it just, it's there. Yeah. You just have to set it up, turn it on. Yeah, it, it was amazing when uh, I started in 13 how when I would make road trips and I was sending photos, people were looking at me like I was had three heads, like, how are you doing that? And I was just kept thinking, how do you not know this? Right. I mean, it's no, what I didn't understand was what I'm doing is no different than what they've been doing at the Olympics for the last decade. Right. You know, I mean, that's why these cameras have Ethernet ports is they're all going to an FTP to an editor. And they're getting captioned and they're getting sent out to the wire. So in my mind, it was no different than how a wire service was working. And and I had done my research on how to set this stuff up before my very first day, opening day in 2016 with the Rockies. Like I, I already knew this process. Like I, I knew how to get files in and out of a camera to somebody else in real time. Like it was just how it was. And we were using Wi-Fi even at that time because they didn't have the infrastructure in place for the Ethernet lines, which over the, the time I was there, we got the Ethernet lines all done. Right. Um, oh, so much it, better. Yeah, it just helped. And, you know, you, you can't host pinnacle events without having that stuff in place. You know, once we did 2017, 2018 in the playoffs, you know, it was like, well, you just need to leave these things in as hard lines because you're going to be making pitches because you want to host the All-Star game and, and other types of stuff like that. You know, if you want the NHL to come, you know, you got to be able to run um, to do a winter classic. You got to have these data points. Right. It's infrastructure, you know, people. It's infrastructure. Yeah. And last year we did the, the all-star game and I, I couldn't be happier with how smooth that went, you know? Yeah. I mean, that the point is, is for Jessica at the end of the night to pat you on the back and say, thank you. Yeah. I, that's all I want is just say, thank you. I mean, we appreciate it all. I mean, that's all. You, that's all you need when when you do an event like that. You like, you know, there's things that happen throughout the the day that that you might be asked upon to to help with. You know, like like I helped do the the lighting for the team photos, and we had a and a thing where we needed to find an extra set of risers, and we found platforms that were um, like basically plastic shipping crates that we used as a back row riser, which you can't see in the photo. No, right. People are sitting on them. But, you know, having the light kit there and setting up the lights and getting that all dialed in, just because Colorado at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, bluebird sky, the sun is directly behind your head right in their face. So having somebody that knew how to light a team photo in that exact situation is is immense, you know? Like, you don't have to worry about how am I going to beat a Colorado July sun at two o'clock in the afternoon when it's at its peak and it's literally, these guys are going to stare right into the sun. Right. How do I get the shadow under the cap gone? You know? Yeah. It's, and, and you got to do it all and bang it out in like two minutes. Yeah. And get both teams. Yep. Yeah. That, that's so, all. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that, but, but, uh, but outside of jewel events back to, to photo shelter and the, uh, the workflow stuff, you know, we, we've always worked we're in photo shelter. I've always had photo shelter, personally as well and that's what i deal with with my clients and how i organize my own assets and my own archive and and it's just it's just always just been exactly what i need and 
being having worked at the club level, you know, you have the relationships with people that that help develop that kind of the stuff on the back end. And, you know, Julian, our social guy at, at the time, and I wanted a real time. How do we get this these files to players? You know, I'm tired of texting stuff, you know, and I don't want to have to email a gallery or build a certain gallery just to email them. I just want to tag it, send it out and it and it or send it to an FTP out and it automatically distributes, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, and we never really were satisfied with the photo shelter app to use that directly to give to players. But, you know, we worked for a couple of years and, and, you know, this was also with the MLB at the league level too, was getting green fly to be robust enough. Cause that's what the LCCs were using. But then we finally got, Greenfly to be able to integrate with photo shelter so that we could FTP it out and it would hit a watch folder and then automatically populate in their apps. So that became a, a thing that we helped develop. And then um, when Alex Troutwig was there before my first winter meeting, you know, I talked to Alex and was like, Hey, you know, we've got all these, if we get all these teams on photo shelter. We can, we can effectively link all of these accounts and you can have access and, you know, and this is how I was describing it at the time. You could have access to the entire history of the game across 30 clubs. You know, even the league doesn't own all that kind of stuff. And you can't get that through Getty. You can't get that through the AP. Um, but to be able to have access to all that kind of stuff at, on a team to team to league facing level would be incredible. Um, and a couple of years later, Jessica called me and said, or maybe it was even Alex still, but they called me and said, we want you to be part of this beta program where we're going to link um, your photo shelter with ours and with the Red Sox. So we have a team to team and a team to league relationship. And you then can create shareable folders that will then show up in our archive. All of the files will remain in yours so that it doesn't become duplicate across two archives. And it was one of those little things that was like, yes, this is awesome. Because now when one of my guys that I can't cover goes to Boston and I need something, Billy can just send me a gallery and I can either copy it out of his archive or just pull it down and send it to the guys or just have it accessible in there. But then I can also search it it shows up in my search results as part of my archive that's and, beautiful and then at the league level it's like hey albert pujols just tied willie mays here in colorado i'm going to send you the gallery for the league to have because you didn't have an mlb photos photographer here you had an lcc and you, whatever else you have is through getty or the ap in which you would probably have to pay a licensing thing on whatever but from a team to league standpoint, you know, we're all just trying to cover the game together, Mm -hmm. but I can send them that gallery and then it populates into their archive as having, you know, here's what the Rockies provided to the league of Albert Pujols tying Willie Mays at six, six, one. So there was, there was a lot of little things there. You know, it also comes in handy is when you need like your headshot library, you know, the league provides all these broadcast headshots and being part of a PR department, I need to provide, you know, updated ones to the broadcast or they have to Photoshop it themselves. But if you want the official one that the league issues, I've got a watch folder in Photoshelter and it 
comes in and I just pull it down and send it out. That, I mean, how easy is that? That's I mean, it's per, that's very easy. Yeah. That's all you want. You want one less thing in your job to have to deal with because everybody's working together in unison. Right. That's all. Were you, were you satisfied with the way you, you finished up the archive or was there anything you always wanted to tweak? No, I, I, you know, looking back at what I accomplished, I was always, I've always been really proud of what I created and where I left it. Um, and you know, the, the hardest thing is, um, you know, just walking away from that, you know, um, because you built it. Right. Yeah. But it's also one of those things where having worked jobs in the past where I was the person that built up what it meant to do that position, I, I had done it before. This one was a little different just because it was, you know, it was a second dream job. You know, I had that first dream job with the Nationals. And then, you know, when it was time to move to Denver, you know, it was like, what what is that next dream? What What is it? What's it look like? And, you know, I, then I became the photographer. And, you know, and, and it was building up what does the team photography job at this organization look like? You know, how does how is my vision for that team role? And, you know, and it's not just like, building the archive and, but it was also like building the relationships and being able to create something different, you know, being able to create dynamic images that on their own transcend the moment, you know, I mean, everybody shoots the action. Like if, if you're credentialed at a baseball game, you're shooting the action. And if you miss it, then, you know, maybe you were blocked, but, you know, if you're paying attention, it, it's hard to miss stuff. Right. Um, e- even if it's the reaction side of it, you know, but being able to create that other side of the game, the stuff that really it interconnects the characters with the moments. And that that's the, the thing that I was always the most proud of being able to do was to create those types of images. Why? What was the the feeling for switching to Sony from Nikon. What was your thought process there? I I had kind of dabbled with the, the Nikon mirrorless stuff. I mean, we had a couple Z sixes we used for like remotes and I, I always liked the, the flip out screen cause I could put the camera directly on the ground mm-hmm. and being able to put the camera directly on the ground means, especially when you're talking about hero shots and sports um, and documentary and especially with like sports is and depending on what focal length you're at if you can get the horizon line below the belt line you've got a perfect hero shot um, in terms of your your background framing to your subject ratio now however you decide to shoot or are set up to shoot that player will define whether it stands the test of time or not. Um, but just having that dominant line below the belt line, it, it's right there. And the best way to be able to do that is to get the camera on the ground. And my first time using the mirrorless stuff, I was able to do that. And the big thing with switching to Sony was, you know, they had been asking me for a few years to try their stuff. 
So I, I, they sent me an A9. They sent me the 400. Um, I told them I needed a 135, and three months later, the 135 was released. <laughs> Man's got pull. <laughs> that wasn't me, but um, I, it was in the rumors that on like Sony Alpha rumors at that time too. But um, I told them, you know, like I also want a good relationship with my pro service reps, and you know. I gave them feedback on how the files were rendering and some of the stuff, you know, and they listened for the most part to, to everything that I had to say. And they made notes. And even though I wasn't even shooting their stuff yet, um, they asked me to provide them with, you know, details of what they can do to make it better. And then that next camera would come out and it like the a nine two, like I have an a nine two now and an a one and, that a92 was a better camera than anything nikon had out even the d6 like it ran circles around it and it the z6 and the z7 like it couldn't they couldn't touch it and it it was just like i finally got a pro level um mirrorless camera and it's not seven thousand dollars okay so let's say let's break down like the the A92. What was so much better than the D6? What was what was it? The snappiness of the focus, quality well, of the images. I mean, the image quality comes from you know the sensor and the user. Uh-huh. If you don't get your settings right, you're not going to have the right file you need to begin with. You know, and one of the things that 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 I liked about the that camera was it was smaller, it was lighter because. Keep in mind, I like to go out and photograph wildlife and the outdoors, and I got to have something that is compact that I can pack, you know. And one of the lenses that also was calling to me was a one to four hundred, and Nikon had that two to five, but I hated it. Like I tried it and sent it back in twenty four hours. Oh God! But Nikon had the three hundred PF and the five hundred PF. I owned both of those. I took both of those to Africa. Right. And I I loved those compact primes for telephotos, but I always wanted a one to four because, you know, when you go out and you're going to just take a backpack, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't want to throw a 400 2.8 in a backpack. No. And, you know, even the Sony 400 2.8 is like six and a half pounds. I mean, it's incredibly light. I love it. Um, But everything in the mirrorless game is, is, is getting lighter. But, at the time, you know, it's just the little things that they had and the little things that they listened to. Um, and then you could see it come out in the new model. And it's like, oh, you know, let me try that and see how the files look compared to what I saw with the A9. And, you know, it was it was better. And then we were all sitting with bated breath when we heard about the A1 as being rumored that it was coming out. And, you know, I remember sitting down at eight o'clock in the morning, mountain standard time, watching that entire (laughs) presentation, texting, you know, half a dozen different team photographers. And, you know, I said, that was it, you know, and I already had relationships with people on the pro services side and I didn't even shoot their products, you know, and I could, I texted a number of guys at Sony that day and said, I'm switching. And I got replies back on that day, you know? Um, wow. Yeah. And I mean, it was just like, Hey, I, I'm going to switch. I'm going to start my process. I need to get a pro services account. Um, 
I'll get through spring training with kind of what I have, but I'm looking to get in and get going, you know, and I had, um, some issues on the Nikon side when we would get into postseason ball, you know, I, I have a month out, I'd say I need a D five and a 600, you know, and if we don't make it, just cancel it. Don't even send it. You'll give it to somebody else. And both years we made the playoffs, I got no assistance from the pro services side. And it just drove me nuts that I I couldn't make a, like as a pro services guy that had as much gear as I had, you know, you qualify for um, free gear loans and you qualify for, you know, reduced rate cleanings or whatever else. But when it comes to like baseball playoffs, you just expect to have the ability to make a call, you know, with enough notice. And I gave them a month. Right. And all I want is an extra D five and a six, because I don't know what situations I'm going to get into, or if I need to hire a freelancer, but I want those files out there at center field or wherever I end up putting a six, if it's a remote, you know, Mm -hmm. it's needed available. And, you know, the, that last year we had in the playoffs, 2016, we got one from Canon, <laughs> you Jesus. know, you know, like, and we didn't even get it from CPS. We got it from another local photographer who was just like, yeah, you can borrow my six because you'll have somebody out there shooting Canon. You can borrow mine. And, you know, that's the type of stuff where it's just like, you know, what am, why am I even spending money on a, on a brand that I can't get the littlest things out of. Right. Like it's one thing like to get NPS priority when you order something pre-order when it first comes out you're spending money with them but i've already spent the money like where's the 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 services afterward and i've had no issues on the sony side getting set up and getting the the gear i needed you know we needed stuff at the all-star game and they had stuff out here the week before the all-star game and it was you know they sent us stuff out in april to to test, you know, before I even got an A1 in my hand, like they were like, Oh, well, let's just send you a four on A1. I shot the whole game in the snow with an A1 and the 400. And it was beautiful. Like it didn't have any focus problems on those massive flakes. And I was just like, you know what? I made the right choice. Yeah. Thank you. Know? You. you know, and it, and it also goes to show you, like I'm having coffee tomorrow with my local pro services rep, you know, it's just, it's it's all about relationships when it comes to anything in business, anything in marketing, and anything you want to do. You know, networking got me the jobs that I want to get, and staying in touch with people and just having relationships. I mean, you know, that also goes back to being a team photographer too. Like, you have relationships with people, you're going to get access to things. You have relationships with people, you're going to get called for jobs. You know, it's just you have to stay networked, and you know being able to to continue to have those types of relationships in the the camera world as well as the sporting world. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. It makes your life so much easier. It does. When, you always have someone you can call. You yeah. just know who to call. Or and, you know you can call someone that has someone you can call. And the worst part is, is you don't need to stress about that stuff. You've got so many other things you're trying to do. You're trying to create this damn content for this client that's already on your back. And the last thing you need to worry about is your camera provider getting the gear to you that you've asked for 30 days ago. Right. Unnecessary. 
unnecessary. And how easy is it for them to ship it out? It's not that hard. Well, and at that point, it's what? It's 2018. The D5's been out for for two years. Yeah. The 600, that 600 had been out for four or five years. And, you, you know, when you're talking about baseball playoffs, there's nothing else going on in October that has more weight and eyes than the baseball playoffs. Sure, football is happening. Sure, college football's just started. But there, there's nothing. I mean, even hockey's just underway and the NBA is getting underway. But none of them are carrying the weight of MLB playoffs. Not at all. Every single one of those wells ends up on a broadcast. Every single game. Yep. You want to see white or black in the well? Yeah. You know, and that's the thing you need to see at the end of the day is, is you know, th- does it matter? <laughs> yeah. For, for, for a brand like Sony, you know, seeing those little red tags with the G on the side absolutely catches someone's attention. And then, you know, the black lenses, you know, they stand out compared to the white ones. You know, it's, it's a diversion in contrast. It's like, oh, that lens is black versus all the white that I see, you know. And it's the little things, you know, especially from somebody who does, who pays attention to little things. You know, you notice when um, the whole well is shooting Sony's. Like we had a couple of games last year where everybody in the first base well was shooting a Sony G Master lens. Really? Yeah. I in the, in the Denver, we had a couple of games last year where we had five people on first base and they were all shooting Sony, and then two on the third base side shooting Sony, and the other only lenses that were over on the other side were. Um, one person shooting Canon and one person shooting Nikon. I mean, it was that transfixed on that market on that day that it was all Sony. And we, I mean, the other thing is you, you have the relationships with the pro services guys. And then, you, you know, you, someone takes a photo of everybody in the well and you send it off and, you know, it's like, hey, we're out here. This is, this is what the first base well looks like. It's all your brand, you know, thanks for the help. Jesus, no. that's unbelievable. Have you even... San Francisco was actually one of the first cities that I saw the Sony stuff taking off. San Francisco and Minneapolis were the first cities that I saw it really, really taking off. That's an interesting two cities. Yeah. I, you know, that Minneapolis, you wouldn't expect. And San Francisco, you kind of, okay. No, but if, if you think about the shooters that were up in Minneapolis... It, it makes a little more sense. I mean, you have Brace and Brad Rempel. Um, yeah. Those guys were like the early, early adopters. I mean, I think they both had A7R3s, and they were using them as remotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they were really, really early adopters because they were adapting Canon glass really early on. That makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah, which is also why a lot of Nikon people took a lot longer to shift because the Canon folks could adapt the stuff the Nikon people, it was either all in or not. And right, yeah. When, when the lenses weren't available, they just aren't available. And you're not going to buy Canon glass to switch to Sony. You know, I, I wanted everything native. You know, and that was that was the thing. Once, you know, when I shot that 400 for the first time, it was like, oh, my God, I could even backpack with this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was shocked when I pulled it out of the box how light that 400 was. Yeah. I thought there was something missing. Like yeah, they, they sent me the demo. Are there elements in here? Like it was just, yeah. it was shocking. Yeah. It, it makes you wonder like 
from the technology standpoint, you know, you can tell I'm a big technological nerd when it comes to this stuff, but I like to think and dream and, you know, try to, you know, that helps from, from a development standpoint, when you've got relationships with people that can get stuff to developers too. Um, you know, we saw that with photo shelter with some of the stuff that, that we talked to them about over the years, but from a technology on the lens side of things, Nikon and Canon both had, uh, Nikon had the PF element, which saw the 400 or the 300 F4 go down to the size of a Coke can. Mm -hmm. And then, um, Canon had the 400 F4 DO, which is the diffractive optic, which saw the 400 F4 shrink immensely. And that technology has been out for over a decade. Right. Right. But Nikon really shrunk things down. And now you're looking at um, Nikon has a 800-8-6 or 800-6-3 PF for Z as a new telephoto lens coming out. So that lens not only got smaller, but it got faster with the PF element. Right. So, so what does that mean now if you have a company like Sony or even Canon where you've created these six and a half pound 400 two eights and if you add that type of element into it you know the front element shrinks my wonder from a science side of it is do you really need that size of a front element from a light gathering standpoint or can you put a pf element in there that helps direct the light i mean because the pf element basically comes from like a phase for now light which is what they used in um stage productions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. spotlights and it, it focuses a beam of light they're just using it in the opposite sense where it's focusing the light into the sensor as opposed to out onto the stage. So what does that mean in terms of creating a smaller, lighter 400-2.8? Right. It would be nice. The love it of God. Incredible. I mean, think about, you know, being able to get something like that into a backpack much easier and you can pack your one to four and a couple of bodies and a couple of primes. And now I'm, I've got a, a 20 pound bag and I'm flying on a puddle jumper in Alaska that, can only allow me, you know, 22 kilograms of weight. Right. You know, and that's with your packed luggage. Right. <laughs> with, with your underwear and socks. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm just looking for, for the day where, where I can finally, you know, pack all that like that, you know. You know, it's probably 10 years out, 15 years out. But, you know, it's something to look forward to. Have you even touched a Z9? No, have not. Would but you I, would you even try to attempt to, or are you just so satisfied right now, or do you still have a bad taste in your mouth from being? Not- I'm really happy with the Sony stuff, um, you know, and I, I want to get another A1 or another two A1s. I'd like to have three bodies, and the Z9 to me, you know, it's the only thing that I see as a value in that body that I don't have in the A1 is that it takes a bigger battery. It takes the D6 battery, uh-huh. which means you're probably going to get much more shots to it. But, you know, it's all relative now. These cameras are shooting 30 frames a second, so you're filling cards faster anyway. So battery life compared to shots per battery doesn't really matter as much, I think. And, I just can't imagine. What the hell do I need 30 frames for? Well, and to be completely <laughs> honest, I'm very selective when I use 30 frames. Yeah. Um, 
I actually only shoot the A1 at 20, 90% of the time because I'm still getting more than I got at 12 frames a second with the D5. And, you know, with those 20 frames a second, you know, you're talking in the course of a, a somebody swinging a bat, you know, with a, at 12 frames a second, you'll have a bat on the shoulder, a bat straight down at the ball, a bat like coming right back up and then a bat on the shoulder. You got four frames, 20 frames a second. You've got two more frames in there, 30 frames a second. You've got four more frames in there. So your, your odds of getting a bat on ball every time go up every time you increase that. But I was still finding that at 20 frames a second, I could shoot smaller bursts, get the frame every time, um, and with better accuracy. Mm. The, the only other thing that I miss from the Nikon side of things is having a, the in-camera retouch menu or the ability to do multiple exposures. You know, that's, that's the only thing that I miss is I, I can't do an in-camera multiple exposure. And when you're working for... With Sony, you can't? No, there's nothing in the A1 that will allow you to do an, an in-camera multiple exposure. Hmm. Um, which to me just seems like a, a firmware thing. Like you, right. you would write the code for it. Um, and I think right now they're they're mainly just looking to get as many cameras into as many professional hands as possible. But from a creative standpoint, like I did a lot with multiple exposures um, because you could shoot lighting effects. And the way that I would do it with the Nikon stuff was you could shoot lighting effects. And if you shot it dark so that it was dark on one side and the lighting effect on the other, and I'm talking like stadium lights or um, if you throw things out of focus, just right, you could create bokeh colors on one side and black on the other type stuff. Right. And what you would do is then you could go into your retouch menu and choose image overlay and you could shoot a frame and then composite it with that in camera and it would create another raw file. So you had a raw negative of that in camera multiple exposure. Um, and I loved being able to do that because it allowed me to shoot um, creatively by thinking in terms of I, you basically, I would load a card that I could shoot a bunch of preset shots on. You know, and Andy Hancock, one of Nikon's ambassadors, does a lot of that too. Like he'll go out and shoot street art and then go shoot a baseball game and build um, like almost cartoonish like graphics over the top of ballplayers. And he does a really fantastic job with that type of stuff in his menu. But that was always something that I had toyed with because I saw a photo from John Zimmerman, famous mm -hmm. sports sports photographer from the 70s. It's 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah, years, years. So he had a photo, and I believe it's still on a website that's credited to him, um, Vita Blue. Yeah. There was a multiple exposure that he did in camera with film. So he had to rewind the film to get this thing right. And the shot was a picture where you had all the motion blur of the pitch with just a little bit of focus on the face. And then the second frame was um, all sharp. And I wanted to learn how to create that with a digital camera in camera so that you know, when it came time to caption, it wasn't a Photoshop composite. It was done in camera. It was a multiple exposure, but it was with two different shutter speeds. 
And if you go into the menu on a D5 and you select multiple exposure mode and it lets you take sequential pictures and you can build out the sequences of pictures throwing, you can't change any settings. You can't change anything that would change your exposure settings. So in order to do it, I found it in the retouch menu where I could go shoot two sequences of pitches back to back, but I would have to keep everything lined up just perfectly. And then I could take the pitcher mm -hmm. and overlay the motion over it. And I would get a composite of, I, I mean, it's an in-camera multiple exposure, not really right. a composite, but it, it was a, an image blend of the motion and the static. And I would have it all in one frame. And if I did it perfect, it, it looked like it was all in um, one frame, one motion, one frame, but you had the motion blur in there and it was epic. And then I really got saucy with it. <laughs> and what I would do was I would take the in-camera multiple exposure that, that the camera would do and I would set it up to take two frames and I would shoot before the pitcher went into his motion and then as he was coming through at the end and then put the motion in the middle of it because I'd have two raw files. Right. And you could go into the image overlay menu and you could go in and you could select the motion between the start and the end of the pitch. And because the camera created it, it is still an accepted form of something that you can publish on the wire because it was created with a camera. Right. With a software. And that was always my thing was I don't want anybody to be able to come back and question my ability to make, make a performance piece with a camera. And those were my challenges to myself. And it was how to how to go about doing those types of things. But that is the only thing I miss about not having that in the Sony is be, being able to do performance art with a camera. Well, hopefully somebody's listening and they'll make that uh, make that happen for us. Yeah, I'll talk to I'll talk to my rep tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, over that cup of coffee, let's make that yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah. If you weren't a photographer, what would you be doing? Um, I would hope to be working in the music industry. For for me, it's it's always been I have to be creating and I have to be doing something in that creative hemisphere of the brain. Um, owning my own business now as a freelance photographer and having to deal with tracking mileage and sending out invoices and doing the accounting and the taxes and all that is so arduous. My brother's a finance guy. Like he works and does um, internal audit type stuff for a big company okay and i just can't do black and white numbers and text like i i can't think that way like like i can if i have to sit down and focus on it yes i can get it done but it is not fulfilling right it's just i don't know how anybody would be able to do that god love no. your brother yeah but he's probably making more money than i am tenfold so <laughs> you choose your lifestyle that's you know? it that's it what what is what does photography mean to you? Uh, to me, it's a it's a it is a vehicle of art. It is a vehicle of storytelling. It is a vehicle of you know um, expression. And for for me, I'm able to do all of that. You know, you, know, you get hired by a client and they ask for a certain set of things. There's still that certain part of you that says, "Yeah, I can give them that," but you know, the, I'm going to give you this too, just because. I know it's awesome. I know it's cool. And just trust me, you know? Um, and, and that's the, the, the beauty of creating and the art form aspect of it. And just being able to 
to make stuff, you know, and, you know, people are still making photos now that haven't been made before, you know, and, and that's the, the challenge is how do you, how do you create something now that, that people still haven't seen? Right. You know? Still that, drops their that, jaw. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest challenge, you know, that everybody's got a damn camera on their phone. So the ability to just take snaps all the time and make that, make someone stop and look at your work. Right. It is, it is incredible though. The more cameras there are out there now, I mean, there's still just as many images or the images are tenfold now, but the, the impact of them still has the ability to move mountains. Like, you know, getting in and doing conservation work, you have the ability to, to get a camera in, in, I mean, break it out this way. I mean, people are putting cameras in remote housings with passive infrared triggers and flashes and building studios in the woods. And they're, they're tracking animals that they have not seen with the human eye in years. And they're bringing their stories to the front pages of National Geographic so that people can now understand, you know, what is it actually like for an animal like this? Like they now know that mountain lions aren't reclusive animals. Like they, they actually, you know, meet up at times, you know, and it, family members from the same litters will get together and, you know, they'll share a kill from time to time if they happen to be in the same area, or you've got people that are getting cameras in it and, and documenting, you know, parts of the wildlife trade that are, you know, just absolutely jaw dropping in terms of you get the right journalist with a camera in the right place and you can make, get politicians to write checks, you know, um, or corporations that see that the impact of their company is having on places that they can finally, um, you know, try to reverse some wrongs. Right. Isn't that just amazing? It is, and this is the power of photography. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, my dream job, if someone came to me from, like, the Department of Interior and said, here's some camera gear, go make us pictures. Just go, right. just go wherever you want and make pictures. I'd be like, oh, I'm done. Uh, get and myself a little – yeah. We looked to, at Ansel Adams as, you know, the one who did – get that contract yeah and and his ability to reshape the national park service because of the images that he created in the places that he did you know he brought these places to the public eye and you know the ever since the advent of this technology it has been reshaping the way people see the world yeah it's amazing uh the, the power of what we do how it can stop people on a page or make someone write a check and help provide what we're doing, make it better. We're so fortunate. Yes, we are. Tell me about these animal portraits you did. Yeah. I mean, um, that's pretty cool when you get to have, you know, your subject who's as beautiful as they are. Yeah. Um, we've got a local um, wildlife education place and they do all sorts of in-person and online education services they go out and they they speak about birds and they you know they, they do anything from you know like renaissance fairs to school classrooms to um on-site stuff where they'll you know have a winery showcase some wine but then they'll talk about birds and you know it's it's anything to get people 
to understand more about these um, animals through these ambassadors. And, you know, it allows people to, to change their perception on things too, you know, um, by being in close proximity to animals, you know, and a lot of people when they're first getting into photography, you know, and they're interested in wildlife, you know, they're always captivated about trying to do birds in flight and, you know, this education center and they are a rehabilitation center too. They, they, they do both. So they have wild and injured wildlife and the, some of those animals become teaching animals and others are um, stuff that had like human imprint type stuff. And they, they do a lot of wildlife photography workshops where they'll take these birds out and they'll fly them so people can learn how to shoot birds. Um, Cause there's a, a massive amount of people that, you know, are interested in just bird, bird life. And, you know, they're affectionately known as birders. Um, <laughs> Um, but I mean, they're amateur ornithologists. Right. Yeah. I just love, they got such a cute name. Yeah. And you know, they, they, they want to make checklists of all the birds that they see and they want to learn how to photograph them and be able to make prints for their walls. And, and, you know, what is the best way to, to get them in the right light? And, and what do I need to understand about this species that is different from that species? Like, you know, ferruginous hawk hunts on the ground you know, like for prairie dogs and stuff. And an eagle is going to, you know, take a fish out of the water and, you know, they're going to fly a certain direction with the way the wind blows. Um, so understanding the little things about that type of stuff, they, they teach photographers then how they can expect to shoot them and what traits that they can look for. And also understand if they're stressing an animal because owls will make certain clicks or certain things about if they're stressed or not. Um, before they, you know, all birds will poop and then fly off. But it's one of those types of things where like, what do you need to know about understanding the biological side as well as what to set your camera for? And I was really, really looking for something local from a conservation standpoint during 2020 that I could, you know, start telling a story about. And I reached out to the local rehab center through a friend of mine who was a friend of the owner or the founder of this place. And I said, I know you guys have lost a lot of income this year because of your um, inability to do in-person gatherings. Right. And I want to create something that you can then use to market yourself. That's not the same that everybody else provides you if they donate pictures to you. Um, and that was always birds in flight or birds on a perch, right? And they're always out in some sort of either blue sky, green tree, or brown Colorado environment. And I said, here's what I want to do for you. I want to take either a continuous light or a, a softly diffused single light source and shoot them over black just to give you a portrait of these ambassadors, something that will captivate your audiences as you, you market and ask for donations and that kind of stuff. Um, so that, you know, people will feel something different than, Oh, that just looks like another bird. Uh -huh. And light has the ability to change people's perception of things. Um, 
but I wanted these things to feel intimate and be very, very much like, um, like Renaissance type painting and, you know, a single light source, you know, you, you can't really do Rembrandt lighting from an animal standpoint because they, they don't have the same type of right. cheek and nose type of structure that a human does. But chiaroscuro is a, a lighting used in painting where you have an illuminated subject that slices the light slices through darkness type thing. I, I don't know the best way to describe it without actually looking up the definition of right. it. Right. Um, but you know what I mean. Yep. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to bring in this really, really soft um, light and illuminate the details of them so that when people saw these pictures, they could see the feathers, they could see the, the eyes, they could see the beak, they could, they could feel um, personality, you know, and not have all of these things feel as like rudimentary of, oh, it's just another photo of a bird. No, I want, I want you to stop and think when you see this. And, you know, we, we photographed all their birds and they had some reptile amphibian species that we also photographed as well. Um, so it's been kind of cool. And I think to date I've done like 65 different species, wow. 65 different animals. How did uh, they, so did you use continuous light? I did not. I, I asked her, you know, what she preferred. She said they, they aren't faced by lightning or flashes or anything like that. So, you know, a low powered strobe would not have any effect on them. And, you know, I've got a modeling light on sure, too. Sure. Um, and then the rest of it's just a V flat. <laughs> okay. I wasn't I sure if you flat. hit, you hit that button and then you got a bird yeah. just leaving the set. <laughs> no, I mean, cause it's some shallow depth of field when I'm looking at it. So you were, you yeah. weren't, you weren't pumping a ton of light, but they are no. stunning. It is, it is, all it is, is a 25 inch beauty dish. Um, and it is double diffused with a 135 and the background is just a V flat, um, on the black side. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is literally the smallest, simplest footprint you can absolutely think about in terms of trying to build a studio out of anything. And, you know, the handler would just walk in with the bird on their, on their wrist, you know, right. uh, and hold it. And then I would wait until they, they met the right direction of the strobe in terms of how I wanted the light to fall off of them, you know, and we did it like I do a major league baseball photo day, you know, we're doing like 90 minutes and we've got through 30 birds type thing. Right. You know, and that's the time of them going and, and, getting a different bird and bringing a different bird in. I mean, it was very, very quick because I don't need a ton. And, and if you choose your, your shots wisely, you don't have to do as many strobe fires as well, you know, and some of those birds, you can kind of tell that they, by, you know, how they react, like if they start panting or, or those types of things, those are immediate signs of, I don't really like this situation. And then you're done. You know, I mean, and did you get the sense that any of them were interested in what the hell you were doing? Yeah. All of the owls, to be completely honest, were very um, interested in, in watching me. Like I actually had a hard time getting them to look off camera. <laughs> um, and every time the flash would fire, fire, their eyes would dilate, like all the way open and all the way closed type dilation, like exactly like a, a lens aperture. Right. Yeah. With light. 
I mean, and it was immediate where if you were in the room just staring at them and you'd fire it, you'd see the, the pupils dilate. But if you're looking at it through a camera, you wouldn't see any of it because it was so fast. Wow. But yeah, it, it, it's kind of turned into like a, a small passion project. You know, it allows me to give them something that they then use. Like they've changed all the stuff on their website to feature those pictures. And we did a, they did a campaign last December after we did all the shoots where they were using those pictures as part of their um, outreach and funding, like a December fund drive type Mm -hmm. thing. And just out of curiosity, we brought one bird in that had, um, that was a wild bird. The rest of them were all um, education birds. We brought one bird in. um, It was a kestrel and it was caught in a methane flame burn off so for those that that don't understand how methane flame works it is a clear flame methane burns clear so birds can't see that and in the plains like where we're at um there are not a lot of high perches for things like we don't have a lot of trees around and the trees that you do have around are usually near farms or their telephone poles and that's where you'll see a lot of raptors get a higher elevation when they do their hunting, you know, but they're not flying. Right. And on the plains, there's a number of methane burnoff areas as well as like oil and gas type stuff. And they can't see that flame burn or they may perch at the top of one of these things and not know that it is going to send out a flame as they're waiting to hunt whatever they're hunting that day. And somebody had brought in this kestrel and we, it it had been there for two or three days. So it had survived and they had deemed it a candidate for survival, but they wanted to get the message out on this new rehab facility. So we took a picture of it from the backside of it with the surgical glove in there so that they could delineate that this was not a, education bird this was something that was a medical type situation we used the same lighting it wasn't as dramatic it was a little flatter but you could see all of the burns for for where all of the feathers had burned off of the tail and they basically posted that to let people know that they have this rehabilitation center if they were seeking donations and the recovery of bird like this and they they ended up clearing like $15,000 in um, that month, just in donations from using these photos. And I mean, just hearing something like that, where my work made just that little bit of difference, you know, it just kind of makes you want to go back out and, and give that just that little bit of time so that it can make a huge difference in, in a place like this or for animals like that. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. I, I noticed you are in a group. Uh, Brace does this. A couple other people. Kelly's done it. When your season was over, when you're with the Rockies, you might have even done this with the Nationals, but you went on a trip, and it seemed like you went on a trip to rejuvenate, get away, and refresh yourself. Is that something yep. that you just started because of the the grind of baseball? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was always this a bit of that, but it was also, um, you know, you know, getting out and disconnecting is something, you know, we all need to do from time to time. But 
after a grueling season like that, you know, it always makes more sense to do it right after you're done. So just get away as fast as possible. Like don't even, you know, they always wanted us to stick around and do these recap things. And I go, I'll get to it when I get back. You know, there's nothing that I need to do right now that is more important than disconnecting. (laughs) Um, So, you know, and you know, if you, if you don't make the postseason, it's the perfect time to catch fall color and that kind of stuff too. But for me, I've always had this like love of the outdoors and wildlife and, you know, incredible landscapes and just being out like when you get out into the mountains and you you open the door for the first time you just have this big fresh aroma of pine you know and you look out over a lake and then you've got moose you know feeding on willows and you're just like wow it doesn't really get any cooler than that um but it even even a half day of that in the middle of a baseball season is enough to to refresh you and push you through for a few more weeks, you know, and at the end of a baseball season, it's, it's always been one of those things where we, you know, before I had kids, my wife and I would always go last year, um, a friend and I went to the Oregon coast. Um, but it was always something that we had completely planned out, you know, what, what we wanted to see in terms of like landscapes or national parks that we wanted to visit. Um, just because we would get ourselves a general sense of where we would end up. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we could leave the exploring and, you know, what wildlife we would come across was always, you know, a flip of the coin. You know, it was always kind of a game time decision. You know, what, where, where are we going to go in that national park or, or what are we going to try to view? Or is this a sun, sunrise place or a sunset place? You know, what's the best time of day to take that in? And, you know, sometimes it's just the middle of the day and throw your backpack on and take some snacks and you're just going to hike and you don't expect to see anything, but well, how much planning went into your trip to Africa? Um, that was actually more of a client shoot than anything else. That's even better. Yeah. I'm, I'm still working diligently on planning my next trip back, but no, I had a client that, um, donates 10% of their yearly profits to nonprofits and, part of that trip was to go visit some of the places that were beneficiaries of some of their donations and to, to do a little video and some still photography of those little interactions and those types of um, company to, to nonprofit relationships. And then also to capture wildlife that they could then use in their internal marketing or, or external, if they really wanted to, um, for PowerPoint presentations and artwork for their walls and that kind of stuff. And it was, it was way too short for what I would deem a fully immersive African experience, but it was just enough that you got the taste of it. And it, it just kept me to this day. I'm still salivating to get back. And it, it also really opened my eyes even further to the conservation side of photography and the storytelling aspect that's over there and what what the possibilities could be wow it was yeah you made some beautiful images didn't you take everybody after the um all-star game like it seemed like all the photographers went on a field trip to go shoot some parts of the rockies yeah um (laughs) 
So the MDMD field trip was that what kind of what did you? Yeah. So I was. I'd always told like team photographers when they came through, like if they had an off day or they wanted to get up before one of the night games and get out and go see something, I'd be more than willing to take them out to do it. And once I found out that the all-star game was coming, I started getting the bug in people's ear, you know, Hey, if you come out, stay an extra day. So the day after the all-star game were, where it's like literally the only off day before like workouts start. And then the, like, so you, so after the all-star game, you have one day where there's nothing. And then the second day after the all-star game ends is a workout day, travel day for most clubs. And then the Friday is when the games start back up. So that Wednesday I told them stick around an extra day, make your flight for late afternoon. If, if you're getting out and then, I'll take you guys to one of my places. And everybody that stuck around that extra day, I, we took them up there. We took two, two cars and I did not go easy on them in the sense that I said, if you want any opportunity to even see moose, we have to be there at sunrise. And this was the the morning after the all-star game and the all-star game and all of the pack up and, people getting stuff filed and, you know, returning loaner gear to Sony and trying to just get your stuff together. Like most of us got out about 1130, you know, home by 1230 in the morning. And I was picking them up from their hotels at quarter to five Sunrise is at five 30. Oh, actually I was picking them up at a quarter to four <laughs> Sun, sunrise. Um, um, sunrise in Colorado in that part of the mountains on the summer solstice is 5 32 AM. Um, so we were about a m- month later. So sunrise is probably about 5 45, um, So I, I wanted them to be there to see Alpenglow and to see like the light hitting the peaks for the first time. And just to have that cool mountain air and the pine. And if we didn't see any moose, but we, we did go on a, a bit of a hike. Um, there wasn't a ton of elevation gain and we stopped every time John said, I need a breather. Cause he's a, he's a, he's a beach boy. Um, but yeah, just being able to give that experience to some people. I like, how often are you going to get John Suhu out in the mountains? Like, never. I, when never. I saw that photo, I was stunned, stunned, yep. happy yep. though. I was very happy and stunned. And the good news for John was the Dodgers were opening in Colorado after the break. So he had a couple of days to recover and it was his birthday. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we, we went to breakfast on our way down and with everybody. And then we, you know, we had everybody back to Denver by like noon. Um, but it was, it was one of those moments that, you know, I've always wanted to just take some of my friends out there on an experience like that in the middle of a season. And I got to share it with, five or six people. And it was, it was pretty cool. There's definitely more that I wish would have been able to make it. And, you know, soon enough they'll get out here, but right, it was one of those things that I set the precedent for all of the next people that host, you know, that is a super cool thing that you did. That was which, awesome. Which the Dodgers are hosting this year. So John will probably skip it. <laughs> yeah. Unless you want to go to the beach. He's going to take everybody to canters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, tell me about this project that you, cause we were trying to, 
when you dropped that I'm no longer with the Rockies text on me and I called you up and you're like, I love to do the podcast, but I'm I'm heading off to the islands to shoot uh you know, the players for the planet. Tell me about that. How did that go, that experience, and what is that about? Yeah, so um, when I left, I knew I was going full-time freelance, and one of the, the first pro- the first project that I had was with Players for the Planet. And Players for the Planet is a nonprofit started by Chris Dickerson, former Major League Baseball player. And he... Um, is basically enlisting athletes from any sport to, you know, help combat plastic pollutions in our oceans. You know, a lot of that starts in the clubhouse, Mm -hmm. all of the waste that is generated from just drinking water and sports drinks out of plastic bottles. And then, you know, you know, as a player, you could go through five or six or seven of those a day, you know, multiply that by 40 in your clubhouse. And then you've got, you know, 162 games and you're talking millions and millions of pieces of plastic that your team is creating a year just in the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it started for him. And, you know, one of the other things that they do here in the States is a lot of tree planting initiatives. So they'll, they'll like Tony Kemp with the A's is one, a good example. And Colton Wong, I believe has done some tree planting. Um, but what they'll do is they'll basically match a certain amount of stats to a, a value, and then they'll go donate that amount of trees into their community. And this project in December was to do a beach cleanup on the beaches of the DR, um, which was centered around the same weekend that um, they do their home run derby midseason, basically winter ball midseason home run derby kind of all-star break. Okay. Uh, and David Ortiz was hosting that. So they, they wanted to do this beach cleanup the day before they bring these athletes out from that, that would either be attending that or participating in that so that there was something there to connect with. And then they'd bring down more athletes that were players for the planet guys to help with the beach cleanup. So we had, um, Robinson Cano and Nelson Cruz there, Wander Franco, um, just to name a few of the Dominican guys. Mm-hmm. And the big thing is, you know, Chris, Chris always says like, you know, these guys are our teammates and, you know, if something is affecting them, it's affecting all of us. And, you know, if they've got pollution in their oceans where they're, and it's washing up on their beaches where they train, you know, that affects us back home when we're trying to prepare and, and, you know, it affects, it affects the entire team. So in order for them to be able to be a part of that team and help collect trash off their beaches so it makes their home better than it helps their clubhouse. So that's kind of this idea that they've got going. And, you know, we went down to cover the beach cleanup and then also got to cover the uh, home run derby. So that was, that was pretty cool. That's I've, nice. been to, I've been to one foreign country for a baseball event we did a game in mexico and the, the baseball culture in the island nations and in spanish-speaking countries is just it's a different game so different so different yeah i covered the world baseball classics in mexicali and it was the time of my life oh my yeah. god 
I made like such that's one of the things on my list. Like the the WBC is at the top of my list. Like everybody, you know, when they become a sports photographer and, and they really decide that that's what they want to do, like the Olympics is the that thing on their list. For me, like I want to get entrenched in the World Baseball Classic. Like I want to I want to cover it from a documentary standpoint and like short glass 35 135 type stuff and then the big moments with the four you know i that's how i want to do it yeah no it's it's the it's the best experiences to get out of the states and actually see how sports is absorbed in other cultures it's 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 so much fun so much fun well i i can't thank you enough to take the time um I know your your life is extremely changed in the last you know ninety days, and it's only going to get better. What is the future for for you? What do you see? Um, I want to spread things around a bit. Um, I still want to do the editorial sports. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to be doing stuff with AP and Getty. I've got things in place with both of them. I've actually already done stuff with AP this past weekend, and and. I did some stuff with the Broncos already too. Um, so it's still the, the editorial documentary newswire baseball is hopefully going to be there. Um, just sports in general for that. And then I'm also working to, to facilitate some commercial clients so that I'll have some commercial work coming in. And, and I, I really want to be able to do like athlete portraiture and that type of storytelling because there's there's a it's a nice crossover of athlete portraiture where you can have the raw documentary stuff as well as the the polished studio stuff i still want to be able to do that so finding the right clients to allow me to still produce in that sense um and then the last thing that i want to continue to do is i want to do the conservation stuff and it is a much different path than sports photography um and the storylines aren't always right in front of your face and they take years to develop some of them and i want to kind of look at that from a a video and a still photography sense and try to start digging into some grant writing and see see what's there and try to try to use the time for that too um from so that's kind of where i'm at from the professional side of things so that's good. That's good. And and then you got a little two year old. You got a wife. Yeah. You got the Rocky Mountains. You got all kinds I'm of stuff. Going on away. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much for the time. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to learn your your path. I, I absolutely adore your work. I think you made a mark at your time with the Rockies on the way other photographers are trying to make images, which is very rare to say that a photographer can actually change the look of the industry. And I absolutely believe you did. The way you covered that Rockies and the way you made it feel, it was not like a sports photographer, uh, but a fine art photographer who happened to have a baseball game going on around him. Right. Appreciate those words. <laughs> it was awesome. It was beautiful yeah. work. Beautiful work. Matt, I wish you all the best. Thanks for your time. Um, good luck tomorrow with that uh, Sony rep. Maybe you can get some things working in the right direction. Yeah, looking forward <laughs> to it. Keep in touch, man. It was good chatting with you. Absolutely, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Yeah.
Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my episode with Matt Dirksen. Follow him on Instagram at Dirksen Photo and check out his website at dirksenphoto.com. Please click the like button if you enjoyed the episode. Always subscribe as well. Please leave a review if you enjoyed what you heard and remember to follow the podcast on Instagram. And you can find all the past shows on the website, justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.